0: What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with Justin Lacob, the co-founder and head of development for XTR, also the co-founder of Documentary Plus, which you're gonna hear more about in a little bit. All right, so guys, I had this idea. I wanted to do a podcast that really focused on the world of premium documentary, which we had never done before. And I thought, to make it a little bit more fun, what if we try to curate a list, 12 documentaries to watch before you die? And I needed somebody that was an expert in the field. And I thought, you know what? I haven't talked to Justin in a while. Justin is working full-time in the world of documentaries, as you're about to find out. XTR, a powerhouse in the field. They've been Oscar nominated for their work. They are financing independently their own films and series, including the Magic Johnson series. He is living in this space. So I thought, let's bring in somebody that knows documentaries as well as anyone in the business, and let's hear from them what their favorite 12 documentaries are. 12-ish. Justin didn't exactly stick to the rules, but that's okay. We'll allow it. Uh, Really grateful for Justin to curate this list. This is my holiday gift to you, The Loyal Peeps, the 12 documentaries to watch before you die with my guest, Justin Lacob. I hope you enjoy it. I have to say, I really appreciate how game you were to do this with me when I first texted you about this.
1: I love doing Anything where I have to put lists together, because it is so fun to sort of have that internal debate of like, what is good? What is bad? What makes a good list? Like, I was just so happy you reached out. I've been waiting for you to reach out about something in this space. So I was really happy you did. I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Oh, man, Dude, you're, you're a mensch. I appreciate it. It's a good excuse just to catch up. It's been a minute. I, and I have to say, I want I want to do a little background on you before we get into 12 documentaries to watch before you die. Um, and we'll get into that in a second. Justin has prepared his list. We've had a few cryptic texts leading up to this, but I specifically said I did not want to know any of your choices before we hop on the Zoom. So you've been toiling away and I appreciate you. But before we get that far, you're at XTR. Forgive me. I did not know until you like sent over the bio last night I did not know you were a co-founder of XTR. For some reason, when it was announced that you were there and I knew you were heading up development, I assumed XTR was a film finance or documentary financing company that pre-existed your your arrival. So catch me up on the formation of XTR because I truly do not know this story.
1: Yeah, yeah. So let's take you back to 2018. I'm at Paramount Network in the Viacom universe. It was fine. There's a lot of changes within the Viacom world. I had been looking to leave, but there was, I, I was sort of like trying to find that perfect opportunity to, to go to. So I ended up meeting Bryn Muser, who at the time was the CEO of Riot. He had sold that company to Verizon, I think in like 2016 or something like that. And they had been known for like VR and AR docs. He had been nominated for a bunch of Oscars for short docs, and he had reached out to me after pitching a bunch of projects to me over the years. More long form projects. He was like, he was hoping that I was going to come over to Riot to run their kind of their their kind of uh, entrance into the TV universe. However, Verizon Media had its own shakeup and collapsed, and a lot of the people there left. He left Riot. I then left Paramount in January of 2019, and he had reached out uh, and was like, "Yo, dude, what are you up to next?" And I was like, yo, dude, what are you up to next? So we sat on a beach in Venice, pondering the universe, thinking about the dock space. And really, we we just came down to like, hey, let's do something together uh, moving forward. So from pretty much then on out, I started working from his kitchen in uh, in Venice and then later Silver Lake. Uh, And then we roped in this other woman, Catherine, and we got some financing together. And we were off to the races uh, in the spring of 2019. Do you guys,
0: do you ever reference, uh, the Spielberg Lucas comparison to you guys being on the beach and hatching a plan? Do you know that story? I actually
1: don't know that story. No. Oh, you don't know that? Oh yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, Lucas and Spielberg are on vacation together. I want to say it might even be Hawaii and they start hatching the whole plan and premise for Indiana Jones. Wow. They're like they're like playing in the sand and like, yeah, and that's how like it all came to be. That's the that's the mythology of it anyway. But I dude, I did not know this. I had no idea that XTR was your company that you co-founded. And at what point is this in the Paramount run? Did you fall victim to the layoffs at Viacom when this yeah. had gone on? You had. Yeah, so this
1: was right after I was laid off in January 2019. So this was like a few weeks later. And so give was-
0: me. So give me what happens next. So you hatch this plan. You're like, let's start this company.
1: Yeah. We uh, hatched this plan. He'd already been, you know, uh, he had been an entrepreneur already, uh, having built this company Riot, exited that with selling it to Verizon, staying on, and then and then falling victim to their own internal layoffs of the Viacom oath kind of shakeup. Um, but he had access to a lot of capital and basically he kind of roped in a lot of his kind of network of financing to basically raise our kind of seed round. Um, And we closed that June 1st of 2019. And then we started, um, it was the three of us then. It was me, Brent and Catherine. And then we, you know, hired an assistant. And then we started slowly hiring some other people uh, and really kind of getting into that kind of film financing and development kind of universe Um, over the course of that first like nine months. Uh we made a bunch of really safe, smart bets. Um, I think we were on like five films at Sundance that first that first year in 20. So this was January 2020 at that point. Um, and we had a film that we had produced, our first film that we had produced was at was had gotten into South by for 2020, uh, which was in March 2020. And we all know what happens at that point. But I think by then we had like 10 or 12 people on the staff. Um, and obviously we all went remote during COVID. Um, but that didn't stop like the machine that we were kind of building at the time. We weren't going to let a pandemic end that dream. So we really just worked really hard. We built a, you know, we raised $17 million from a film fund during like the first three months of COVID that allowed us to basically put a number of bets into into motion. Um, we raised money and put money into our Magic Johnson series. Um, did that independently uh, during, during COVID. We ended up flipping that for like a huge premium a year later uh to apple um and then started building up our production division um started building up all our kind of our documentary plus streaming platform um and just kind of kind of went exploded from there
0: so now in 2023 you guys have you know been the sundance darlings you've had emmy nominations oscar nominations for your work with Apple, Paramount+, Plus, Nat Geo, Disney+, Plus, all the major platforms, Peacock included. In 2023, now, given the landscape, given that Showtime isn't quite the Showtime we knew it to be uh, from a couple years ago, uh, knowing that the HBO Max team is no longer what it was, um, and it's now just the lone uh, docs department at HBO, uh, which only have so much inventory, In 2023, the model for you guys right now at XTR is what? How much is it you guys independently financing versus having platforms on board from the beginning?
1: Yeah, I would say it's probably Uh, 50-50. I mean, maybe this year we were favoring uh, maybe 60-40, 60% commissions, work for hire, selling things early, 40% financing. Um, But it's even shifted... Even more dramatically, because we also have our platform, Documentary Plus, which is you know it's free, ad supported, it's AVOD, it's a fast channel. But we've also entered the distribution space as of a month ago, where we're also going to be acquiring projects and distributing projects theatrically on TVOD through other SVOD platforms, and then eventually on dot Plus. So a number, a, a big part of our slate moving forward is also in the acquisitions market, mm-hmm. um, in addition to financing films as well as you know presale commissions. As, as well.
0: So, you're, you're, you're launching a platform out here, an Avod platform, Fast Channel. Justin, you're just turning into a regular mogul right now before our eyes.
1: It's, you know, it, it's always what I wanted to do was, you know, be entrepreneurial. Pretty much every job I've ever had, I've been in that kind of entrepreneurial space. And this this XTR has really given me the ability to kind of do business development, to build tech platforms. To build other tech products, like we're you know, interested in the AI space and, and building out some tools there and what we could kind of use um, in the post-production process, as well as in other processes uh, for making documentaries. So it's definitely afforded me the ability to kind of like put my roots down and, and working in a lot of different kind of areas that normally working at a network or working at a production company, I wouldn't have had access to do.
0: So if anybody wants to check out Documentary Plus and the platform where can they find it how do they go about it you said it's all avod you said it's a fast channel so where are the platforms that carry this that we can check it out
1: yeah it's on the web internationally www.docplus.com it is avod on demand on roku ios tv ios uh soon to be vizio as a standalone app and then as a fast channel we're in 90 million homes samsung uh out of the box samsung us on samsung tvs canada Mm -hmm. We're on Freevee, uh, we're on Sling, and we're on I think 14 other platforms as well. So, and
0: how many hours of content 20, do you 15, do? You, how many hours of content do you have right now?
1: Uh, we're refreshing the whole library right now, but we've got two to three hundred hours of content that's mostly licensed content. And then we do we have had some originals that we've done in house at XTR that's on the platform. And then we're slowly, as I mentioned, requiring originals that will live exclusively on Documentary Plus.
0: And do you bifurcate your employees between these people solely work on XTR stuff and these people solely work on Documentary Plus? Or do you have some crossover?
1: Yeah, I'm the crossover person uh, because I run Documentary Plus. uh, And then, of course, I do my job development current and production for XTR. But we do have separate teams that kind of execute um, those pieces of the business.
0: Now, before you present your list, which is 12 documentaries to watch before you die. Let's right. talk about some of the conversations we had leading up to this. And I like doing it at the end of the year like this, because I feel like while we have Christmas breaks, people catch up on things they've always wanted to watch. They look at their letterboxed app, movies they've been wanting to get to. I know I know that's what I have planned for the holiday. And I realized if we want to put like a little holiday spin on this, the 12 docks of Christmas.
1: Ooh, I love Like that, the 12 dots of Christmas.
0: So, if you have not seen these before, if Justin has any new titles that you've never been exposed to, this is the time, people. This is the time. This is the service we provide you on this episode of the podcast. Now, I did give you a little direction in the beginning. I said, I want to be broad enough where this isn't a list that will only speak to industry folks, right? Yeah. But then, You know, you sent me a text the other day that was, uh, you know, I'm having trouble deciding between two different Michael Moore docs. And then when you texted me that, I'm like, well, wait, wait, let's not make the list so broad that these are definitely things that everybody has seen, you know, for for sure. So we want to have some gems in here. And that's when you were like, all right, let's expand the list from 10 to 12. And let's have this be a mix of like just straight all-time Hall of Famers and also some personal choices of, of yours.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think so. And look, I mean, I think some of the broad ones that like people might have seen, people may not have seen like, do you deserve to be on this list? And I also think that like for a younger generation of people, they won't have seen some of the big Hall of Famer docs. And they may not have seen any of the Michael Moore docs at all. Um, but yeah, I think that's a fair assessment to make because I had a list of like 50 docs that were in my top 10, which I know sounds like an oxymoron right there. It's like, you can't have 50 docs in the top, top 10. And I, I definitely cheated a little bit because I have like a lot of ties. Uh, so there's probably like 15 docs on the list of 12, but or 60 docs on the list of 12. But you know, I definitely uh, uh, it's an it's kind of an impossible task, but it's yeah. a fun task.
0: Look, you're gonna be around your family around the holidays. I'm talking to the industry folks here that listen to the podcast, and you yeah. have people from outside the industry that you're friends with, family members, and they think, hey, what should I be watching? Anything good I should be watching? You're the you're the unscripted expert. This is your cheat sheet. This is Justin providing you a list of new titles for folks to experience. Uh, forewarning for the audience, I have no idea what this list is. I don't know how many I've seen. And to give you a little bit of background for me, I'm not like a huge docufile myself. Like I, I've seen some of the most famous ones, but, you know, I've got a wide variety of taste, and I got two kids at home. So I'm I'm churning out through my own list of movies I have yet to watch on letterboxd uh my favorite new app like this morning i was watching bringing up baby for the first time you know there's like classics i haven't seen up until i watched uh officer and gentleman the other day for the first time like just i'm making my way through like a hundred titles of movies i have never i just watched sunset boulevard for the first time the other day and i i get get through like maybe three movies a week i watch them when i'm on the treadmill in the morning for my my one hour of the day i have to myself before my kids uh before yeah is that what you do too
1: I I don't watch like old movies, but I do watch like all the shows that I never can watch when my kids are around on the treadmill. It's what I, that one hour of time is like precious for catching up on the weekly shows.
0: That's right. So if I have not seen these documentaries, no judging. Okay. I want no judging from you unscripted people out there that listen to this. All right. I'm not a machine. I'm a man. I'm a man with responsibilities and a list of my own to get through. So I'm sorry if I have not seen Free Solo. which I have not not seen seen yet.
1: There's a lot of populist movies on this list, but there's also a lot of hidden gems as well. All
0: right, let's Uh, go, baby. Number um, 12, Justin.
1: Real quick, just in terms of criteria, just because I don't want to get judged, and I'll defend all of these to the death in a grudge match in the wrestling ring. And I know that's just for you, Jimmy, as a big wrestling fan. Uh, But the criteria was like, what docs changed hearts and minds for me? What docs entertained? What docs were where the truth is stranger than fiction, which is a big part of the appeal of documentaries for me, and what docs are able to transport me to other universes and other worlds that normally I would never get to see. So that's kind of the criteria uh, that I came up with for this list. But top 12 countdown, number 12, not surprisingly, is a tie. Uh, and that is, it's also a cheat because they're two series, but that's okay. Uh, and it's the jinx and making them- Wait, wait, wait,
0: hold on, hold on, hold on, hold we're, on. We're doing series here? We're doing, We're
1: doing features, but I had to put these two series. The only series that are on here, okay. I had to put them on there because okay. to me, these are like the gateway drug into documentaries. And if you're a new documentary lover or new, docu- new into documentaries, you have to watch these docs. Yeah. Everyone has probably seen these two, but I had to put them on my list. Because they really were part of the boom of like the modern day, like why people are so obsessed with documentaries now. And if obviously if you're not familiar with the jinx, it's the strange and fiction true story of Robert Durst, long suspected in the unself-disappearance of his wife and his one of his family friends. Um, on the face of it, maybe an ordinary true crime series, but back in 2015, like the doc boom hadn't happened yet. And really HBO put doc, like modern day docs on the map. Um, Obviously, the access that Andrew Jarecki had with the Durst family and and Robert Durst was amazing. Um, But that final twist where he muttered on hot mic in the bathroom as he was peeing that I killed them all like that to me is like, that is like the way to get any new documentary people into the space. I mean, it was like the twist ending that only scripted movies have. Um, and obviously, that that like can, that led to his arrest, his conviction for murder. Finally, um, he also did Andrew also did another great doc, not on my list called Catherine the Freedman's. Which, if you haven't seen that doc, mm-hmm. it's sort of like the luck a documentary filmmaker finally kind of falls into. Um, he was making a doc about uh, clowns, a family of clown performers in New York, and as he was making that doc, the father, the patriarch of the family, and his brother. Were basically accused of child molestation, and then it became uncovered that they had been like filming those like endeavors and that sexual abuse. And Andrew ended up like making this incredible film, but almost lucking into that whole type I, of. Experience. I've never even heard
0: of that film. What, what film? What is that called again?
1: Capturing the Freedmans.
0: Capturing the Freedmans, and that is not on your list. And by the way, that's ste- not on my list.
1: It was. I, it was on I, my list of
0: fifty. I stepped on this is the problem with Zoom. I stepped on your reveal of this. So the two titles you had that were series was The Jinx and Making a Murderer. That is what you had said. Yeah. And then yeah. I jumped down and then I jumped down your throat because they were series. They were so serious. I'm sorry. I apologize for that. We're getting off to a great start. The Jinx. Yeah. Let's back up a second on the Jinx, because I know the one thing that still gets debated, and and look, there's a lot of validity to this. It, the Jinx and Making Murderer do kick off the true crime. I guess you call it the golden era of true crime, right? Like ID, 100%. ID had been ID for many, many years, but in terms of like the world of premium true crime, as we know it, the jinx and making a murder really start the boom where now every cable network, every platform wants their making a murderer wants their jinx. And we know that because we were, we as producers were told that for years after, including you guys, when you guys were at, at spike and, and paramount, right? The jinx though, that final scene with Durst, where he's caught on camera muttering that. I think that became the first of many accusations by people on the outside of what role do producers have and the gray area of what goes on when covering these cases and when the authorities get the files, get the evidence turned over to them for the sake of protecting a piece of content. I don't know what thoughts you have on that, but this is like the first example of that where i think the role of the producers was called into question in a very high profile murder case
1: for sure but i do think there's also a distrust of like from the police to documentary filmmakers and i know from first and experience is that i've worked on a number of these like active true crime type of cases uh true crime series and like the police don't want to hear from us like we did the series at spike it was one of the first things we launched at paramount network with joe berlinger where he was investigating these like missing and murdered women in um, in, in middle America, tried to approach the FBI, the local police, no one really wanted to hear from us. And like, we definitely tried. we aired the show like without comment. And it was like, we try
0: that. And look, and look that, and that is all valid. If, if people yeah. have tried to turn over whatever evidence they have to the authorities, you've done your job as a producer.
1: Yeah. Right. Exactly.
0: And, and I don't know enough about what went on with the drinks to know what, what, j- Directly decided to turn over and when, yeah, yeah, and when yeah. authorities prosecuting Durst for Kathy Durst, you know, I don't know when they got their hands on anything. You know, it it, it, it is idea. kind of weird that there isn't some sort of like standard by which people must follow when producing an active investigation or open case piece of content,
1: right? No, no one trains for that. And I think the risk, especially on something that isn't independently financed, something that is financed by Netflix or HBO, I'm just thinking, I don't know if this is actually legitimate or not. I would imagine that they're nervous that they're that they can't protect their investment if they have to like subpoena all the tapes and they're not able to air it until after something a case is adjudicated and that could be ten years. You know, and this is
0: and look, and this, I don't know. You, you speak to you, what you've heard, but this, this is why I think over the years, from a number of folks, people mostly just want fully adjudicated cases, of course, right? So it's there's listed. not like ID. Oxygen, like from what I've been told over the years, like we don't really want open cases, you know, anymore. We want things that are done, shut, proven. Someone's in jail. That's what we need now. Right. So, anyway, Sorry. That was a lot. That was a lot. Okay, we won't talk as much about each and every choice here. But yes, the jinx Hall of Fame. But it tied with making a murderer, which I mean, what can you what can you say? I mean, that that really did that come first. Did that precede the jinx?
1: Yeah, I think Making the Murderer was around that same time, maybe a year earlier. Uh, don't quote me on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, these were but these were also like viral sensations. Like, those were all word of mouth hits. There was no marketing behind these, these, these series. These were all things that just caught on from people watching it and getting excited by it. And having that discourse of like, especially on like Stephen Avery, it's like, is he guilty or innocent? I remember fighting with people on in, in the office, water cooler conversations and on texting, like truly the first viral type of uh, documentaries, which is great. Were you
0: team Avery or team
1: he did? it? I was actually team Avery. I actually thought maybe he was innocent. Uh, you yeah, know, there was a circumstantial evidence. And then remember me and you did a show. It was him where we like had a whole other killer that killed Teresa Halbach, which was obviously not true. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, that's neither, neither here nor there. I think about that all the time.
0: I think about that show. More than I, more than I should. It was him, it the was many him. murders, yeah. the many murders of Ed Edwards. Do we have any idea if that actually is on Paramount Plus?
1: I don't think so. I think it's like in the vault of Viacom somewhere. It's great,
0: awesome. I'm so proud of my work. Um, all right, what is number eleven?
1: Okay, another eleven is another cheat here. Uh, it's a tie. It's between Amy, the Amy Winehouse documentary, mm-hmm. uh, and one of my favorite documentaries of all time, LA92. Uh, they're both archive-driven documentaries, which is why there's a tie here. One, obviously, very salacious, leading into Amy Winehouse. There's no talking heads. There's audio interviews, um, but really kind of unpacking like the rise and fall of Amy Winehouse and really how we as audience members are complicit in her in her death. And then there's Le 92, which is an incredible film that's all archived, that really immerses you in the story of the 1992 riots in Los Angeles. Um, the score on that film is amazing. Um, it's the same directors that did the Tina Turner doc that was on HBO last year, uh, T.J. Martin and Dan Lindsay, and it's but it's so evocative because you're just like dropped into an experience and you feel like you were in the riots in 1992. Um, it's incredible if you've seen that one, but it's it was on that Geo. I think it was on Nat Geo originally. Incredible film.
0: And Amy, who, who directed Amy again?
1: Uh, Asif Kapadia.
0: Yeah, I've been I've been meaning to see Amy for for years. I was such a big fan of Amy Winehouse um, uh, back in the day, and yeah, I have that has no talking heads, so it's not like a traditional.
1: Neither are traditional, and like the one thing about Amy is like there's they did do audio interviews, so they use those kind of like sparingly over this amazing archive that they have. Um, but Ellen ninety two, there's no interviews, there's no talking heads. It's just never before seen archival and amazing music score. And That's narration, it. no narration.
0: So it's a lit. Wait, there's no talking heads. There's no narration. So it's literally just all archive to tell the story.
1: Yeah, exactly. and it's take
0: and it's taking you through the that one day.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's a little bit of like the setup too, um, and of course there's people talking just in the archive. Of course, uh, but it's yeah, it's immersive. You feel like you're in a scripted film. Like it's 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 literally one of my favorite docs of all time
0: tj and dan man those guys those guys going back to undefeated you know like the first documentary that i think they won the oscar for right was the the high high school football team i mean i met them years ago and lovely guys so talented and oh my god the work they've done over the years it's they're putting themselves in you know mount rushmore conversations slowly over the years and they they're younger guys. They still got a lot of room left.
1: Um uh, to, at least to 50 years of uh, work going their way.
0: Uh, all right. So that's another tie for number 11. Number 10.
1: Yeah. Okay. This is a hidden gem. I believe it's still on Netflix. It's called Shirkers. This is one of those documentaries that's like pushes the documentary genre in a whole other space because it's definitely a hybrid scripted documentary universe. Um, basically... It's about like in also in 1992, coincidentally, there's this woman Sandy Tan. She's the director of the film. She was making a narrative film with her best friends in the summer in, in Singapore. They have this great time. They get all this like free equipment from Kodak. They're still in locations. They're casting actors all over the country. It's like a road trip movie. They meet this like American film professor who becomes like their mentor to like making this film. And he agrees to edit the film back in the States when the summer's over. So they give him all of their footage. And these are like the old school, like hands of footage, like shot on film. And they never hear from him ever again, literally ghost them. They write him, they call him. And this is the nineties. So there's like, no, it's, it's really hard to track somebody down. They're not in America. They're abroad. He's some, he's lost to the wind 30 years later they basically canister start showing up on Sandy tan's doorstep and wherever she lives now. And she eventually finds out that he dies and his, like, I, I forget exactly who sent the, the tapes. who's like his next of kin. Um, but she basically gets everything transferred and decides to make a movie where like they she explores like the friendships she had that summer why yeah, this guy like ghosted them but she uses all of this amazing footage as a way to like illuminate the universe and the world so it becomes this just like really cool hybrid documentary meets kind of scripted universe and um, cracking the code of crack-
0: like what and cracking the code of like what happened to this guy and you know in a
1: in a way like it's sort of like less about that and more about the journey you know the journey Um, but yeah, a little bit of it sort of like is solving this mystery of like why this professor ghosted her and where the, and where the canisters went. And of course, like the audio is all corrupted in the end. So she can't use any of the audio, which is why like she ends up using it as like, kind of like the archive in a way from the documentary.
0: Wait, what's that called?
1: Shirkers. Shirkers? Shirkers. 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 Yeah. S-H-I-R-K-E-R-S. Shirkers.
0: Shirkers. Okay. Yeah. It's
1: just from a few years ago.
0: I'm writing it down. I'm
1: writing it down. Okay. Um, okay. N-
0: number nine.
1: Number nine. It, it is unfortunately another tie. Uh you are
0: cheating. You are cheating the system. I mean, I
1: cheated a lot here. Is but this the
0: last is this the last tie?
1: There is one more tie, but I maybe I won't give the tie, maybe I won't do the final tie. It's the number one film, but uh this oh you is-
0: did, you did a tie for number one.
1: Well, no, I I'm, I'm, like, on the fence about, I'm still on the fence about which one I'm going to go with. So maybe I'll just go with one or the other.
0: Okay, so we're we're on number nine right now?
1: We're number nine, and that's okay. uh, Wiener and Icarus. Uh, Wiener is about, you know, Congressman Anthony Wiener. At the time, he had just survived, like, barely survived this, like, sexting scandal uh, that got him basically kicked out of Congress. And he was running for New York, the mayor of New York. Um, and he's married to, uh, Huma Abedin, Abedin, who was the chief of staff for Hillary Clinton. They're repaired their marriage. Everything's great. And then literally more and more sexting scandals come out. And he eventually like, he admits to like sexing an underage minor and he has to quit and resign from the race. But this is another one of those like, stories where like the doc filmmakers who are incredible documentary makers, at least Steinberg and Josh Kriegman, they luck out into the story. Like, they think they're following this mayoral campaign of his comeback and instead get his downfall once again, um, which is also why I have Icarus on the list, which is, like, another lucked-out situation. Brian Fogel, Oscar winner, he's amazing. This film's amazing. You know, he, he's investigating the, you know, the world of doping in sports, meets this, like, Russian scientist who's, like, talking about, like, how Russia is so great at, like, anti-doping, but then admits that... Russia has been state-sponsored doping for years for the Olympics. Like, they've been cheating at the Olympics for decades. He then has to go into hiding in America, but he ends up, like, testifying and basically taking down Russia in the Olympic sports. Like, it literally is a doc that literally changes the world of the Olympics forever. But had he not had that relationship with the, the scientists or gotten access to that interview, there would be no movie here.
0: And didn't the filmmaker for Icarus like completely fear for his life throughout
1: the? Uh, Yeah, I think well, both this Russian scientist and Brian. Yeah, but Brian doesn't. I mean, Brian's like a ball, ball, you know, a baller, ballsy filmmaker, and like like Matt Matt Heinemann is similar, where they just put themselves in harm's way now and like literally will make any movie they want to make without any care for their own self because they really want to tell the story um, and break these stories about these you know things that are happening around the world.
0: Great picks. Great picks. Yeah. All right. Number eight.
1: Truffle hunters. Uh, this came out, I think, in like 2020-ish. Uh, I think it was Sunday 2020. This is a film, like everything that documentaries are, but everything that documentaries aren't. You know, it's basically these stubborn old men in, in Italy as they search the forest for like the most rare, expensive white truffles. Um, you know, they're like guided by the secret culture and this tradition that's been passed around by generations. Um, but it's also a film about like their relationship with their dogs, who are sniffing out the the the, the truffles, um, and it's also about like the illicit like uh, trade of truffles. But like every time you're watching it, you're immersed in this universe, and you actually feel like you're watching a drug deal um, because it feels so. You're like in this like crazy subculture that you would never never have access to, um, and it's just shot in this like completely cinematic, beautiful way where again, like you're transported into this. Universe of um, you know of truffle hunting, and it's you like- said this.
0: You said this was in Italy.
1: It's yeah, it takes place in Italy.
0: Yeah. And are they selling these directly to restaurant owners?
1: Yeah, there's a little bit of like you get. You, it captures a little bit of that story of like meeting like the middlemen who were then taking it to restaurants. In some cases, some of them are selling directly. In some cases, you see like this crazy markup where like the the hunters are selling for a, a, a good amount, but then the the middlemen are selling it for like four x, And you're like, well, oh, you're making all the money and they did all the work. So there's a little bit of that like exploitation. You kind of get a sense. There's no real judgment in the film, but it's a really good movie.
0: That is, that is one of those stories that if that got brought in as a pitch-
1: No one would buy it.
0: Would never see the light of day.
1: Never see the light of day. It's like, you have to see, you have to execute it to sell it and see it. And it's like, this is the doc for like foodies, for animal lovers. Cause you get that great, um, you get that great story of like the, these men and their dogs. And also there's like this crazy story where like rival, po- like truffle poachers are like poisoning, like leaving rat poison out to kill the dogs. Like it's, cr- it's crazy. It's such a crazy, it's a crazy one.
0: That And when did that come out? That came out recently, right?
1: Yeah. I think that was like 2020 ish. Okay. okay. Yeah. Truffle hunters. All right, number seven. Number
0: seven.
1: Not a tie. It's, um, it's British. Uh, You know, this is the doc that changed everything about SeaWorld. And, you know, it really kind of touched upon, you know, keeping animals in, in captivity that really shouldn't be. And, and as a particular uh, orca that killed three trainers at SeaWorld. Um, and this is just one of those ones that just had such a big impact because it really changed SeaWorld's policies. They got, they like retired their like breeding program for orcas. They stopped their live performances of orcas. Um, it really had a real impact. It's been controversial for that reason, um, but it had a real impact on, I think, the world. I
0: I mean, Blackfish was such a sensation when it came out. Can we just sidebar for a second on, has anybody had a more diverse career than Fisher Stevens?
1: I mean, you know, including from hackers to succession as Dude, an actor. Short circuit. Short circuit, of course, the original. Yeah, uh, he's still my favorite character on Succession as well. Uh, and then you just have this rich, you know, directing. I mean, he didn't direct Blackfish, but he had this rich directing career, uh, doing all these amazing documentaries and not in producing a ton of documentaries.
0: Yeah, he produced Blackfish.
1: Yes, and I think okay. he and he also did Tiger King produced.
0: That's right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the guy was an actor in the '80s for for years, and then goes on and he's like now like royalty in the documentary community after the success of blackfish oh, and then yeah. he ends up on the most popular show on hbo for years on succession steals every scene he's in and then oh, oh yeah oh by the way he's just like you know making oscar nominated you know documentaries on the side
1: i mean look i mean i saw imdb 105 acting credits yeah 27 producing credits 25 director credits like the man is a machine but was uh,
0: was it beckham or
1: he direct he directed Beckham.
0: Yeah, he directed Beckham. That's his. Yeah, he yeah. directed
1: Beckham. Um he's directed, you know, a lot of he's directed a lot of scripted stuff too. He did the Lincoln Project on the on Hulu last year. Um he did that like Justin Timberlake Apple movie last year too. You know, yeah. dirty money. I mean, his his credits are great.
0: Yeah, Fisher Stevens is an absolute machine. I mean, I can't think of anybody who's had that kind of career specifically on the documentary filmmaking side and also crossed over as talent. Like that never that never happens.
1: That never happens.
0: All right. That was number seven, Blackfish. Great pick.
1: Six, I was deciding, this is the Michael Moore pick. I was deciding between Fahrenheit 9-11, uh, Roger and Me, but I went with Bong for Columbine because yeah. for me, this was one of those films, it, I was in college during Columbine. I was in college when this film came out. And to me, it was one of those films that really inspired me to get into documentaries Um, you know, it was one of the first films that really talked about gun control, why we have school shootings. And this is the time where like, there weren't many school shootings. This was like, Columbine was like the first one. And obviously, he sort of predicted everything that was to come with, you know, the lack Mm. of gun control in America, the rise of school shootings and gun violence. He predicted everything in this documentary. Mm. Um, And it's just a shame that nothing has changed.
0: That would be a fascinating revisit. Yeah, I I saw it when it came out. I think I even saw it in the theater.
1: When I did, yeah.
0: It, when it came out and you know you and I are of the same era so Columbine affected us deeply. I mean I was in high school when it all went down and remember remember it vividly the day it all went down. But that would be a fascinating revisit to now watch him dissect how the system is broken when it comes to gun control bills passing in this country and now 20 years later you know, that zero progress. So many more mass shootings since, but zero progress made.
1: Almost since. backward progress. Yeah. Like worse yeah. progress. Yeah. Um, and interesting, he did that sequel to Fahrenheit 9-11, but like this is the one he should actually do the sequel for. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. makes all the sense. That makes all the sense in the world. You heard it here first. Perhaps I- Michael Moore, you should do the sequel with us.
0: I mean, he's. I mean, soon enough, he's going to be coming up on like a 25 year anniversary of Bowling for Columbine. No,
1: yeah, very soon. I think it was like 2000 and 2000 or 2001, something like right.
0: that. Right. So pretty yeah. soon, we're going to be going towards a 25 year anniversary, which is a a frightening thought in, in itself. Um, by the way, I love it in your bio. You're like 20 year veteran. I'm like, how is that possible? I was like, oh right, I'm going to be 20 years from my college graduation next year. Like, oh right, we've been doing this a while um all right yeah
1: yeah i think i'm at like 21 years now but i round down i round down as you should uh, number, number six five, number five wait, that, wait,
0: was wait. Six. That, that was six we had number five that was six
1: all right. number five is a modern day classic won't you be my neighbor um, one of my all-time favorite docs love it example, mr rogers dude i cried i think five minutes in of course this is why this is on the list and this is why like a lot of people have seen this doc, but it is, if you haven't, like a doc you have to see before you die, because it's so emotional. It's what it, it's like, it. if you're not moved by the first five minutes or the second hour of this documentary, like you're dead inside. Like, I grew up watching Mr. Rogers, so it brought back those, like all those feels, and nostalgia of that era, all the amazing things that he did. And it's like, just a great bio doc. And I think for like the Gen Z people that don't know who he is, or maybe watch Daniel Tiger as a kid, like, they're gonna like be blown away at like all the things that he did to move culture and site change to you know move racial re- relations forward in America. I think you know we need to remember and bring back those like that spirit of Mr. Rogers to like help us repair with everything going on now.
0: Oh uh, it is truly one of those very few pieces of content that you watch and as you're watching it, you're like, I need to question I need to question everything in my life and how do I how do I show more kindness? Right. You 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 really at least that's what my experience was as I was watching it. I was like, God darn, this man was a freaking saint and inspired so many. And it wasn't like he was a natural entertainer. It wasn't like Mr. Rogers was one of the funniest people in the world or one of the most talented performers in the world. He was just really kind and he cared. That was that was literally his superpower, was his kindness and and his caring.
1: And he knew how to talk to children in a way that they weren't looked talked down to. I, right. He was at their level, and I think that's why he got, got so much respect.
0: Great pick. That was number five. Number four.
1: That was that was number five. So four, I had a different four than I'm actually going to say now. Uh, my original four was three identical strangers, but I'm actually going to throw out. Oh,
0: I love three identical strangers. By the way, I I, I mean, I, if we're going to throw it out, let's 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 not throw the baby out with the bathwater just yet. Three identical strangers. I use as one of my examples of some of the best quote unquote, recreation cinematic, right. Photography in any, any documentary ever made like the first five minutes, the opening of three identical strangers is as good as any scripted movie opening. You will, you will ever watch. It's fantastic. Kudos to the team at raw for, for what they made. It's it's one of the best.
1: Oh, so good. It really is one of the best. I'm like, made so much money at the box office. Like, It was just like, it's such a great Stranger Than Fiction story, which is why I love it. And like, maybe it still should stay on the list, but my other pick for this category, Metallica, Some Kind of Monster, which is Joe Berlinger, one of his earlier films, where they unpack and explore Metallica through the lens of group therapy, uh, where they all go to therapy together to get, basically get over all their shit. Uh, Can I say that on this podcast? Uh, You can say okay, good. get all over their stuff and to deal with like the traumas of, you know, being together as a band for so long. Um, it's just an incredible film. And it's also one of those things that like men and mental health aren't really talked about. And to have talked about that, I mean, now of course, yeah, now, but this was, you know, 20 years ago. And I think for that to kind of be a beacon um, and allow these like really macho dudes like Lars talk about their feelings in a group therapy setting, like was kind of break, you know, groundbreaking at the time. Um, So anyway, that was my number four, sort of cheated with three identical strangers.
0: All right, we're in the top three. I'm going to give Justin a moment to catch his breath. These are the 12 documentaries to watch before you die. Justin right now is thinking, am I keeping this tie at number one? Jimmy called me out for it earlier. Am I going to take the easy way out and have a tie for the best documentary you need to watch before you die? Am I going to stick with it? Am I going to eliminate one now and call an audible? Here we are. We come back to the list as we rejoin Justin mid-thought as he ponders what he's going to do two picks from now. But for now, here we are at number three. Number three, Justin, what do we have on the list?
1: Number three, you you haven't seen this film. It is free solo. Uh, It is-
0: I really um, need to see this, don't I? Here's the thing. I don't like heights. I don't like heights. I don't even watch videos that pop up in my Instagram feed where it's like losers-
1: like the buildings and it's stuff. like
0: losers hanging off the edge of a building, you know, doing <laughs> these influencer videos they do for like shock value. I don't, I don't do well with these things. I get tense. I don't know if I could stick through ninety minutes or whatever it is of something so grand. I, I appreciate the filmmaking. I know, I know the endeavor was just an incredible achievement. But this is why I have not seen this film. But tell me why you love it
1: it's, you know, the cinematography, of course, like is incredible. I mean, the camera cinematographers were literally tied to the mountain capturing the story. And I think it was like, even though it was just a recent film, it was like one of the first films to really embrace drone photography in a way that's not just an aerial shot of a true crime project. Like it was just so dynamic. But then of course, it's the life and death stakes. You have Alex Hanold, who was literally climbing a mountain without ropes. And like, Can he do it and will he fall to his death? I mean, those you can't get stakes bigger than that. Um, I love sports movies. I love action adventure movies. This is one of those that has like everything in there. You have a love story in there. You have the life and death stakes, as I mentioned. And you're just on the edge of your seat and you just can't catch your breath because he can't catch his breath. And he's on the edge of his fingernails hanging on for dear life. And you're just unsure if he's going to reach his goal. Look, I don't think you think he's going to ultimately die, but you're not sure he's going to be able to do the feat.
0: I'm getting the jitters just as you even describe it to me. I am getting, I'm getting high anxiety, Um, but that sounds incredible. It it won the Oscar. It's, it it is, it is cemented. It is gold plated in the history of documentaries. Number three on your list. I totally get it. I don't fault anybody for loving it. Totally understand. All right. Number
1: two. Number two. It's a film called Honeyland. Have you seen this film? Oh
0: yes. I think I have seen Honeyland. Um, I think I saw this on a flight a couple years ago, this was a film that came out a few years ago, correct? Like, is this like 2020? Yeah.
1: yeah, this is like, I think like, yeah, 2020, this is a film that was nominated for best documentary, best international feature and, uh, and best um, foreign film. Yes. Holy, foreign film, doc feature. And there was a third, uh, a third that I can't remember what it was now. So is this is is like- about
0: the woman who lives in the village and she has to travel all the way into the city to sell the honey. And yeah. meanwhile, they're like being pushed off their land. Right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I so saw like, that,
0: I, this was in, is incredible. This is an incredible yeah. film, yeah.
1: But like, you're you're, you're searching the uh, Netflix or Hulu, this is on Hulu, you're searching Hulu for somewhere to watch and you come across the log line, a Macedonian beekeeper makes honey. You're like, okay, no, not, not for me, this isn't for me. But when you watch it, you're like tr- transported to this universe that it's almost like Star Wars. It's like otherworldly, you're just plunged into this woman in this small village doing this thing. And then you add in this like gentrification story of like this family that comes in and basically steals the bees and steals the honey. And there's like, this this great tension and conflict at the core, which is why it transcended documentaries and was like in the international like feature in the scripted category, despite being a doc and other in another category. Now I can't remember. It's just, you you just fall in love. It's like, you fall in love with this woman. You're like, it's just, it's about magic. I mean, it really is like one of those like films about magic that you just never would have expected anyone to kind of fall in love with this movie or this character.
0: I mean, this just feels like it's, it's documentary filmmaking at its purest form, right? It's interesting characters that suck you in to a story and a backdrop that you would, you can never imagine, right? The, the true humanity that the cameras are catching, you know, as, as the filmmaker is documenting all of this and everybody seemingly it's as if the cameras just disappear, right? it's 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 100%. all true. it's all real. it's these are real characters, real life. but it's as if these cameras just completely disappear and nobody being documented even acknowledges the fact that there will be millions of people that will ever see this, right? It's so pure, right. and to and to have this be a modern story that is so pure is just is such a rarity, right? I do you know yeah. the backstory on how the filmmaker even came upon?
1: They, are from, they're from Macedonia. I'm like pretty sure it's two filmmakers. It's like, I think it's a like either husband and wife or a male, 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 female, but I can't remember if they're married or not. Um, but they are from the general region. And I think they like came upon her, I think in the city or something. I can't remember the exa- exact story. I did sample the honey. I went to an early screening of it um, and the honey was amazing. It was really good.
0: Oh really? Is that how you saw it? You went to an early screening?
1: Yeah, I saw it at like Noya House in, in LA uh before yeah, before it came out. And it was, it was a great film.
0: I came away so inspired after seeing that. I remember like I went to like my whole team after I got off the plane, came into the office. I'm like, you guys all gotta check out Honeyland. This is
1: this is oh, unbelievable. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It's funny. I like in college, I took this like anthropological film class. It was 8:30 in the morning on like t- a Tuesday, and I would fall asleep every every day. And it was like, man, fishing. And it was just like pretty honestly dry and boring. But this, if this film had been shown in that class 20 something years ago, like it would have inspired everyone in that class to be like going out and capturing stories with their cameras and wherever they are from. And like, that's for me, this is like just an inspirational film of like anywhere you're on the world, you could find these amazing, intense, colorful stories and the cinematography and the gorgeous landscapes. Like it literally has something for everybody. But on the face of it with that log line, like you would be like, past i'm gonna watch free solo that's right watch this but watch this one instead
0: that's right all right we've
1: arrived number one i'm gonna go with one choice
0: okay so you're gonna eliminate okay so do you want to tell us what the runner-up was that somehow was good enough to be tied for number one but somehow won't end up on our list because
1: we're idiots the runner-up is the war room da pennebaker chris hedges the war room i've not seen this bill clinton's 1992 presidential campaign. Mm. The access is incredible. It mm. literally made characters out of George Stephanopoulos and James Carville that that's catapulted them into become the, their news careers that they did. Um, it's just immersive, amazing. And like you just at the time, like you never got that behind the scenes of like a presidential campaign that like now everything is out on social media and you get that access immediately. Look at two points. Okay, wait.
0: Scenes. Can I guess what the number yeah. one is?
1: Yes, right.
0: So if you have the war room, which, when did, when did that come out?
1: Uh, probably like 90, 93, 94. Okay. So it came
0: out somewhat contemporaneously then. Okay. So if you were going to go into the nineties for the number one, I bet. Okay. And, and you've been theming everything you've been theming everything. So this has to be another nineties doc. So I'm going to go with the one that would be on my list. If I was doing this, and I'm going to say it's hoop dreams.
1: You guessed it.
0: Baby, baby. Yeah. Oh my God. Hoop dreams. Okay. I'll I'll let you take it away in a second. But I remember I was in the perfect time in my life to see this film. I was in junior high, I want to say, playing basketball. And I had to go to a like AAU club tournament or something. And me and my mom were out, you know, forever this tournament was, which was kind of far away from our house. And we needed to kill like half a day in between like our morning game and like our evening game. And we went to some mall and hoop dreams was playing and we watched it there in the theater. And I remember just being completely mesmerized and just the, the, the time lapse of it all. You know what I mean? Just like filming with them as children and then filming with these same players later as their teens and into college, you know, chasing their hoop streams. I just, I was, I was so young and it was, it was a formative work for me finding me at that point in my life. Um, it hit me at just the right time. I was completely blown away. I was completely I, I think I think it maybe even introduced me to documentaries. I think it might have been the first taste I ever got.
1: I think for me, it was the same. Like I saw this in high school, middle school, maybe even, and like it was like probably the first documentary that I ever saw. And like blew me away that, like you could have these two similar but very different stories, and the past that they each took very different um and really just like that idea of like a parallel journey i think was just really really fascinating i mean it's about hope it's about faith it's about
0: well back back up because we didn't say what it's actually about for those that don't know
1: yeah for those that don't know and i think like a whole generation of people probably never heard of this film and probably can't find it because i don't think it's on any streaming services is that right um i looked it up because i tried to license it for dot plus and it was like very very expensive but so i think they like
0: but did PBS? It. I feel like PBS had some sort of relationship with this documentary. At least at one point they did.
1: Maybe somebody I think like a Participant may own this one, or I can't remember who owns it now. But I'm sure it's like available somewhere to pay for it, but not really for like free free washers, especially for the like younger demo. But basically, it's about it's about the parallel journeys between two young African American basketball players, real for like a, basically like a ten year period i think where it's like in high school uh or middle school to high school to you know trying to go get into the nba um and you know and it really is them uh, dealing with the pressures of their families of their like neighborhoods and where they grew up and like having to contend with all that kind of like generational trauma as well um, um you know ambition class like it really is about all those those types of, of things race of course um it's just a phenomenal film steve james directed it He's gone on to you know, make amazing films over the last you know, 30, 40 years. Um, this was like a Sundance darling, great film. One of the best ever made. Got to watch this week. It
0: set in Chicago. Um, and this yep. is like really just the beginning of like the AAU club basketball, the business of basketball recruiting, the dirty side of that business, the hanger-ons, the connectors. I mean, this is just before I think no, this is just after like blue chips, the movie, you know, had come out. Like this is just something that's entering our our consciousness, um, and hits at just the right time. It'd be a totally different story now. Um, if you were following, you know, two, you know, uh, aspiring basketball players in Chicago, first as they're like 12 years old, all the way through them trying to make it into college. It'd be a totally different story now. Um, but yes, it's it stands the test of time. It's roughly, I think just under three hours. Um, and do you know how it was received at the Academy Awards?
1: I think it was boxed out and uh, deemed ineligible.
0: It didn't even get nominated.
1: Yeah, I think they said it was like literally ineligible for the category.
0: Why was it ineligible as a best documentary?
1: I don't know. I have to. I'd have to go do a little bit of research on that. If I, but like I saw that somewhere a few like a year, a couple years ago, and like it's just bizarre. Bizarre. One of
0: my all-time, one of my all-time snubs.
1: Yeah. And, and by the way, like, it doesn't even feel like a documentary. It's like you could be watching The Wire. It's, you know, you could, you could be watching a scripted thing. Like it feels, again, it's like one of those immersive things. And like that's what documentaries should be. Like documentaries don't have to be you're sitting down and feeling like you're getting spoon fed your vegetables. Like I like to call it like hide the vegetables. Like it just needs to be a great story. And I think that's what this modern documentary boom has been all about. It's just great stories by great storytellers. Yeah. And and it could be equivalent to, you know, Avengers or whatever else people love to watch.
0: Dude, great list. Do you want to burn through it real quick one more time for review for those that want to play catch up and just jot these down one more time? Do you have it all in front of you?
1: Yeah, yeah. got it all in front of me. So Go we have ahead. number 12, The Jinx and Making a murder tie. Number 11, a tie with Amy and Ellie 92. 10, Shirkers nine, a tie between Wiener and Icarus, eight, Truffle Hunters, seven, Blackfish, six, Bone for Columbine, five, Won't You Be My Neighbor, four, uh, Metallica, Some Kind of Monster, but also backup Three identical Strangers, three, Free Solo, two, Honeyland, and number one, Boop Dreams. Straight heaters. Was that, was that good? Was this populist broad enough, but but also like specific enough for you?
0: Straight heaters. I mean, I think I think for our our folks, maybe they could use one more obscure title. What, what? Give me one more obscure title. One more obscure title I've never heard of probably that I'm not aware of that is a Justin Lacob. Real quick. Give me like 90 seconds on one more obscure one that you think is a personal favorite that everybody should check out.
1: I mean, I'm going to say a film I worked on, which is Ascension which was uh, seen that. Have you seen that one?
0: I've not seen Ascension, but it was, uh, was Apple plus.
1: Yeah. uh, uh, Oscar nominated Paramount plus MTV docs. It's a poetic lyrical look at Chinese industrial world of manufacturing. It's really fascinating. You're just no talking heads. You're just dropped in on like a manufacturing plant, making like Trump memorabilia on making sex dolls, On making cell phones and you're just dropped in this universe with no explanation. And it's incredible. It's poetic. It's lyrical. It's my obscure, obscure pick.
0: You know what? We had to get one of yours in.
1: I was not going to do that, but like, I kind of felt like I, I should
0: Oscar Uh, nominated my
1: man. Yeah. One more, one more for you. Yeah. One more for you. Sherman's March, Ross McAleague. I've heard of this. This is like an old school, like eighties, nineties pick. Uh, People can look it up themselves, but that's another one. And then another one that's coming out soon called The Contestant, which for any reality TV fan out there is one not to be missed. Came mm-hmm. out at this year. will be on Hulu next year. It's about this like story based in Japan. And it was a reality series that basically locked a guy in to a room with no clothes no food and the only way he could live was by winning magazine like writing into magazines to win contests and he did it for like a year or two it's incredible and it's all the archive from um with interviews from all the people that like made the show um it's like gold for any reality tv like fans and, 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 it's... and producers like like all of us
0: and and everyone in it is japanese and it's all subtitled
1: it's yeah i mean a lot of people speak english in it but yeah but. Otherwise subtitled, yeah.
0: Oh my God. The guy was locked in and the only way for him to survive was to win like magazine sweepstakes?
1: Yeah, and he was naked as well. So like- <laughs> And this was got, broadcast? This was broadcast, but they cut out all the sad stuff. Yeah. Which of course, this, on, this documentary on the locks, like all of that footage.
0: Why did he do it for two years?
1: He was a wannabe comedian. And, and by the way, he wasn't actually locked in. Like, he could leave at any time and he never left.
0: So he just never quit on the experiment.
1: Yeah, he never quit.
0: And there's network executives out there in Japan. They're like, "Yeah, let's just keep this going." Like, so it's like Truman Show esque a little bit.
1: It's like Truman Show before Truman Show. This is like in the in the like mid '90s. Um, oh and like the the like the architect of this is interviewed in the doc. And like it's an, it's it's very I don't want to like give any more away, but like it's a great doc. Uh, will be a modern classic, I think. But I think will be uh, I think people listening to this podcast will really enjoy it when it comes out next year.
0: Oh, yeah, it comes out next year on Hulu, you said?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: The contestant.
1: Love it. Contestant. Dude,
0: thanks for doing this, my man.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Uh, Any big holiday plans I should be aware of?
1: Just chilling, chilling with the family.
0: All right, man. Well, look, take care of yourself. You look good in your cozy sweater. Thanks
1: for doing this. Thanks, Jimmy. Appreciate it. All right, take care. Bye.